Hello everyone, the Atomic Hobo is back after having a horrible ear infection last week where the pain was so bad it went right into my jaw and I spent the first day mucking about with extra strong mouthwash and dental floss thinking I had toothache but it was my ears all along so when I finally realised what was wrong with me got it sorted out but um, I was out of action for a week so thank you for all the nice wishes people sent me on Facebook and on Patreon that was really appreciated so this week, well, for all those who are lucky enough to live in Britain, you'll know that the news has been concerned with the issue of stockpiling. Um, if there's no Brexit deal and all our agreements about trade collapse, are we going to run out of food? Some people are worrying that we will, and so they're urging the government to stockpile, whereas others are horrified at the very prospect. Um, I'll admit it does seem scary, because for me... The concept of government stockpiling is, of course, linked to preparation for nuclear war. Although I can usually link absolutely everything back to nuclear war. Uh, Candy floss, puppies, little tricycles, anything. Actually, I can link a tricycle to nuclear war. There's apparently um, in Hiroshima, there's a museum there, of course, and there's a badly burned tricycle which a wee boy was riding of course when the bomb dropped so yep there I've done it I can link anything to nuclear war um so this week yes we're going to look at the issue of stockpiling uh, we're not going to mention Brexit we're not going to be political but that was simply what prompted this week's topic so let's forget the current news and dive back into history into the cold war when Britain had buffer depots across the country which were stacked to the rafters with foods uh, and catering equipment because of course after a nuclear war the most important thing apart from water is of course food everything else falls apart if your population don't have food and water I was carrying a loaf of bread home today from my mother who'd given it to me when a guy comes up and offers me a pound for it Well, what could I say? You can't eat a pound note. That's a clip there from the film The War Game. It's recently been uploaded to BBC iPlayer, so again, if you're in Britain, you'll have um, access to that just now. I obviously recommend that you watch it if you haven't done so already. It's uh, second only to threads, in my opinion, in nuclear war films. Um, But that clip, of course, someone's offered money for a loaf and they turn it down because money is useless after a nuclear war. You can't eat a pound note, as he says in the clip. The only thing that matters is the bread in your hand. What can you eat? Money, jewellery, wealth is worthless. It all comes down to simple bread. Um, Speaking of um, bread and how desperate we would all be for food, um, I'm reviewing a book just now about life in the Gulag. Uh, If anyone's interested, it's called Shadows on the Tundra. And that book, uh, along with the classic Gulag book, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which I've been prompted to reread, shows us how desperate and frantic and animal we humans become when we are starved. Every single concern vanishes and all that matters is the, the chunk of bread in your dirty hand or the watery bowl of soup that you'll get at the end of the day. So in preparing Britain for nuclear war... And uh, preparing is obviously delivered to you in big, giant, bold quotation marks. The Cold War planners had to give particular attention to food. 
Of course, the whole idea behind Cold War planning was uh, the survival of the nation, the continuity of governments, and nothing is going to continue or survive if we've all dropped dead from starvation. So food, even though it's utterly basic, it's obviously utterly vital. Most of the debates in public about preparation during the Cold War were always about shelters or evacuation. That tended to be what caught the public's attention. Whereas even more basic and crucial to survival than those two features would be food. Now, Britain, of course, being an island nation, would have been particularly vulnerable in terms of food supply. Uh, During the Cold War, I don't know what the terms are now, but during the Cold War, half of Britain's food was imported. And of course, after a nuclear war, her ports would be gone, probably. Most of her airfields gone. So importing food isn't going to be particularly easy. Uh, Factories and plants for treatment and processing of foods, we can assume most of them would be gone. Your agriculture, probably ruined. Distribution of the foods that you do manage to scrape together is going to be severely hampered by the total destruction of the nuclear attack. Uh, In fact, the only aspect of foods in Britain after a nuclear war, which might be relatively okay, is um, meat. Because um, I've got a quote here, and I cannot remember where I've got the quote from, so I'm sorry, that's not very professional of me. But the quote here is, uh, Meat is likely to be in plentiful supply because great numbers of farm animals are likely to suffer from radiation sickness. Where possible, these will be slaughtered for food. But then, of course, that still leaves the issue of distribution. How are you getting all this? All these carcasses are in the country to the people who need the meat. So the government, of course, realised the need to stockpile food and medical supplies, and they began doing that in the 1950s. Uh, Matthew Grant's book, After the Bomb, which is all about civil defence... Cold War civil defence up to 1968. He says that uh, ministers approved the target of stockpiling £341 million worth of food and raw materials by the end of 1952. And uh, to quote from uh, Matthew's book, only by stockpiling fuel, medical supplies and food could people who endured the initial attack also hope to live through the grim struggle for survival that would typify life in thermonuclear Britain. His book um, also shows a growing divide through the Cold War between the Home Office, who were usually quite keen on civil defence and were always batting ideas back and forth about shelter plans, evacuation schemes and stockpiling, versus the Ministry of Defence, who by 1956 were being very harsh and blunt and saying these things these things are useless these things are not worthwhile it's better instead to put all that money and all that attention towards well they would say this strengthening the deterrent give it all to us instead (laughs) um so matthew grant's book speaks of to quote him this gap between planning hopes and planning reality so despite the harsh words from the mod Public advice issued to the population, most famously, of course, in Protect and Survive, was that they should stockpile their own foods. And, of course, in the background, the government were stockpiling masses and masses more. Protect and Survive uh, said, as did earlier um, campaigns, such as the one we talked about two weeks ago, advising the householder, that recommended that housewives get in supplies of food for 14 days 
wrap them up properly, stock them in the cupboards, build shelves, keep them in your fallout room, etc. So it was recommended you get 14 days worth of food. But of course, if everyone was told to do that at the same point in time, we can assume there would be panic buying. We can assume everyone would be running down to the shop at the same time to grab 14 days worth of food. So of course, there's not going to be enough to go around. Supermarkets in Britain normally just keep uh, a day or two's supply on site. There's no way if the whole country rushes to their local supermarket that we're all going to go home with the required 14 days worth of food. This is also going to be difficult if, by this point, the government have also begun controlling the food supply. That means the supermarkets can't easily restock their bare shelves because the government will be in charge, by this point, of food supply and food distribution. So the idea that we can all keep 14 days supply in our own kitchen cupboard is nonsense. Sheer panic will make sure that the shops are soon empty and government control and stockpiling will mean that there's nothing left to top up the shelves once they're empty. So whilst we're all battering one another down in Tesco, the government would be controlling supply, dispersing it to safe areas and topping up and securing their own warehouses, their own buffer depots. So what were these buffer depots? Well, as we said, huge buildings, picture them as massive warehouses. Most of them were introduced during the Second World War to stockpile and store food, so they were just resurrected or continued in that role during the Cold War. Uh, Duncan Campbell's book, War Plan UK, estimates that they held one and a half million plastic bowls and spoons and they stored flour, sugar, fats, yeast, special glucose sweets and hard biscuits. Uh, One of my earlier podcasts called, I think it's Panic in the Bunker, talks about what life would have been like in uh, particularly American um, bunkers after nuclear war. They were stocked with sugar cubes instead of boiled sweets. And uh, the reason for that is because, I assume, British uh, planning said let's not have boiled sweets. Boiled sweets isn't a great idea because if people are continually sucking on boiled sweets, it might cause mouth sores. So perhaps that's why the Americans opted for sugar cubes instead of hard-boiled sweets, because of course they can just melt on the tongue. So boiled sweets and uh, biscuits, they were also in these buffer depots. Uh, Duncan Campbell's book also says that corned beef, uh, tinned corned beef I assume, and cake mix were also held up until the 1960s. And he says that um, the turnover of these stocks... Um, obviously, these things would eventually go out of date. You know, the Cold War lasted decades. So these stocks had to be turned over as they approached their use-by date. Uh, Campbell's book says that the turnover of these stocks actually led to a typhus outbreak in Aberdeen. And where did all this food come from? Well, again, Duncan Campbell's book says that supplies, government supplies were ordered in bulk. Uh, special contracts were set up for this. Uh, the sugar, huge sacks of sugar, were obtained from, of course, Tate and Lyle. Sweets were brought in from Mars. And the bickies came from a company, which I don't recognise, called Huntley and Palmer. So that's how the government's uh, stockpiles were maintained and topped up. Added to that, we would be expected to have our own little stockpiles, 14 days worth, in our kitchens. So what happens when your own little stockpile runs out? Well... Of course, you have to stay in your own home, again, following the Protect and Survive advice. But when the radiation levels drop, 
and you're allowed to creep out from the rubble and of course when your stockpile has been used up what you would do in theory according to the plans you would stumble along to your local feeding centre which hopefully your local authority will have set up it will be staffed by the women of the Women's Royal Voluntary Service and of course prior to 1968 it had also been staffed by the welfare section of your local civil defence corps but they were disbanded in 1968 so you go along to your local uh, emergency feeding centre and that will have been um, provided with food by again the local authority would have food officers and if things went according to plan they would have been allocated food supplies so you would go along there and once your own supply had been used up you could be given emergency food there nothing fancy of course the main ingredients for food there would be hot tea and powdered soup or if you're very lucky some kind of primitive stew and one particular aspect of nuclear planning which really caught my imagination when I read it I found this in the archives in Edinburgh Um, registers were drawn up of all mobile canteens you know travelling shops which could be used after a nuclear war to distribute this stockpiled and rationed food to the local feeding centres so every local area would know how many of these travelling food shops and vans they had that they could call upon and it was pointed out that this register should also include ice cream vans it was noted that ice cream vans would be particularly useful because they would have refrigerated compartments And these would be great for conveying insulated containers to the food centres. So your own stockpile has run out. You're able to emerge from your shelter and drag yourself to your local emergency feeding centre, which has been stocked by the local ice cream vans. But what happens when the emergency feeding centre runs out of food? Well, that's when the huge stockpiles, the huge buffer depots would hopefully come into play. Hopefully there would be enough there to keep us going for a few weeks longer. And by this point, again, if things went according to plan, a ration scheme would have been introduced. The Guardian in 1986, as late as 1986, reported that the Ministry of Agriculture had printed 56 million ration cards and they were stockpiled in these buffer depots and, after the nuclear war, would be issued at polling stations plan was, according to this Guardian article, that you'd go along to your local polling station, collect your ration card and then a rationing scheme would begin. And of course the rationed food is going to be that stuff that's been stockpiled in the government's buffer depots. But when that runs out what do we do? Well you could wait try and hang on until your country's harvest comes around. Of course this all depends on when the nuclear attack was launched. But um Possibly you could wait for the harvest and that might yield some kind of crop. Of course it might not because depending on the strength of the nuclear attack, fire, radiation might have killed off your harvest and killed off any prospect of a harvest for the next few generations. You're also going to be suffering from a lack of agricultural machinery, lack of fuel to run the machinery, a lack of able manpower. I said I wasn't going to mention Brexit again, but again, we are hearing constantly that after Brexit, we're not going to have any agricultural workers to pick the fruit. So are we going to have uh, able and willing hands after a nuclear war to bring in the harvest? People aren't going to be in tip-top condition. So are they going to be able to do hard manual labour? And even if there is a harvest sitting there waiting to be gathered, the nuclear winter might kill it all off. So that's your harvest perhaps gone. 
What other options do we have? Well, perhaps friendly countries might supply us with food. But as we discussed earlier, ports and airfields might be gone or unusable, at least for months or years. How does the food get to us? Again, looking to War Plan UK, Duncan Campbell's book, he isn't very optimistic in um, wondering if other countries would supply us with food. He says, quote, New Zealand and the Falklands might send some sheep out of Commonwealth fellow feeling. South Africa and Australia might feel less inclined than other nations to let the UK meet its fate alone. But whatever came would have to be shared with NATO partners under the notion of, quote, the equalisation of misery and would be a drop in the ocean compared to pre-war supplies. So not much hope there of other countries bringing us some food. So the only option left then is to be incredibly and fiercely strict with your rationing scheme. Whatever's left from those stockpiles, whatever's left in those buffer depots, will have to be subject to very fierce rationing. And that's where things get very dark indeed. Here's a clip from the war game which deals with people who've been driven to desperation by starvation and who are willing to turn into looters and risk execution just to get some food. This is a government food control centre seized and pilfered by armed anti-authority elements. This is Mrs Joyce Fisher from Gravesend. She was a housewife. Three yards from her, the bodies of the military guard. When morale falls, ideals fall and may go, and behavior becomes more primitive, more a thing of instinct. Three days later, the first policemen in Kent are killed. So there we see the prospect of us all turning violent and savage because we are driven wild by starvation. In the novel Brother in the Land, the survivors are queuing up for food and they're divided into two separate queues. One queue has the elderly or the sick in it and of course everyone who eats the stew dished out in that queue dies. And of course the implication there is that the authorities have thought These people, these sick and elderly and injured people, are not going to be productive members of society. Therefore, feeding them is simply a waste of food. Food is finite and utterly precious. Is there any point in wasting it on people who can't give anything back, who can't do any work? And so they're killed. So food becomes, or could become, a method of punishment or of reward or of execution. Speaking of uh, terror and dread, I'm getting married in two weeks' time. Uh, The reason I mention that is because the hotel I'm getting married at had a nuclear war role. I didn't know this at the time, that's not why I chose it for for the wedding, but it was designated in the 60s as the support site for the the regional seat of government in Preston. Of course, every region of the country... We'll discuss this in later podcasts, of course, but in brief, the country was going to be divided up into regions and each one would have had a little tiny government there, if you like, the regional seat of government. Uh, the northwest region, uh, the structures changed a lot during the Cold War, but at this point it was uh, a barracks in Preston and 
each regional seat of government had a support site where staff would hide out during the nuclear war. And then after the war, in theory, everyone would gather at this regional seat of government. Those who weren't there initially would gather. So some people would be at the support site. And Preston Barracks support site was this hotel in Blackpool. So I am getting married at a nuclear war support site, which is quite cool. So um, my patrons, I keep promising them all a postcard when I go to my next nuclear site. And because things have been so hectic just now, every plan that I have to go to a nuclear site for work or research keeps getting cancelled or postponed. Uh, Hopefully this wedding won't be cancelled or postponed. So I can say with almost total confidence that I will be at a nuclear site or one with a nuclear connection in a couple of weeks' time. And I will send my patrons a postcard from there. And I'll put a bit of interesting nuclear history on the back. Um, Let me thank my patrons who've uh, signed up to my Patreon account to support this podcast. If you want to sign up for a cool nuclear postcard or just to support this podcast, you can find it at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. But let me give a, a quick thank you to everyone who's signed up so far. These good people who are supporting the podcast. Gordy McNair, Paul Jonathan Viner, Claire Brennan, Kieran Taylor, Steve Sace, Phil Catling, Mary Freer, Ben Capper, Wynne Grant, Paul Maxwell Walters, Peter Lee, Damien Ryan, Brian Outlaw, Sean Milson, Colin McGee, Douglas Greenshields, Peter Mars, Sarah Williams, Jonathan Abelins and Sean Judge. Thank you everyone for supporting the podcast and helping me keep it going. Every little helps with the money that they, that they all contribute. Another um, level of reward on the Patreon is access to a forum on Facebook called Atomic Hobos, where we gather and discuss the podcast episode in greater depth. Uh, well, that was the plan. The plan was we will discuss each particular episode, but we tend to just go where the conversation takes us. Um, anyone who wants to contribute or start a conversation is free to do so. Jump onto the Patreon site and you can sign up there. That gets you access to the forum, but also the brilliant prospect of a nuclear postcard from Blackpool. <laughs> okay, that's us for this week. Um, after all that talk of food, I am surprisingly not hungry at all. I think I'm still a bit ill and yucky from my ear infection last week, so I don't even want anything. (laughs) I think I'll just go and pat the dog, because, yep, every Sunday after recording these, I do tend to feel a bit, not miserable, but a bit deflated. But then, of course, I put the thing out on Twitter, I upload it to iTunes and the SoundCloud, etc. And then people start to share it, tweet it, talk about it, people start to comment, and then I get, you know sucked back into the nice nuclear community that we've built up online and it does uh, cheer me up a bit so thank you everyone for listening thank you also those who talk to me about it and uh, share it online it reminds us all that we're not alone okay so thank you all for listening and i'll be back next week with yet more bye for now